we're going to see in this passage is the, the building blocks of a gospel-saturated marriage. It's not the only text in the Bible that addresses marriage, but it's a very important one. It addresses very specific things I think maybe you maybe need to hear today. And to, three, to get through this passage, to unpack this point of a gospel-saturated marriage, I want to look at three points. First, we need to spend a, probably a little longer time than we normally would on context, because context really matters in all the Bible, but especially in this text. We're going to look at, second, the longer stint of the text on instructions to wives, and then third, instructions to husbands. So context, wives, husbands. The context. This is a very difficult passage to hear with our cultural ears, and so I want to spend more time on context than I normally would. Because there's just too much conflict. Think about the times that we're in with Me Too. I mean, just look at the conflicts, the volatility, the fear of how to relate and the abuses or the, 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 all the things that go on in our culture today with what's happening with, between men and women, husbands and wives. And there's so much confusion about instructions even in the, in the Bible. And so even though it may not be actually more heated or more intense or more volatile than past times, it certainly for many of us, feels that way. And so we need to pay close attention. What's going on here? Remember the immediate context of the passage. Whenever you look at a passage of the Bible, and this is why I love going through books of the Bible, it's not in a vacuum. You can't just rip it out and make it say what you think it says, and you have to give the author its you know, due. You have to respect what he's trying to communicate in the context of his writing. And remember, he's writing primarily in this part of 1 Peter to instruct Christians how do you live out your faith in Jesus among non-Christians? That's the main section that we're in. And so he first gave instructions of this main principle in verses 11 and 12. I looked at this a couple weeks ago. Kingdom citizens, we fight for holiness. We abstain from the passions of the flesh. That's what Peter said. And we serve for the good of others and the glory of God. That is the, the main way we are to relate to non-Christians. And he applied this principle to the relationship with governing authorities first. Second, he, he applied it to unjust relationships and suffering, and he really gave the example of Jesus there. And then now he, gives it, is, he applies this principle to the, the building blocks of society, the family, husbands and wives. He's applying it. And actually, we should take from this, this implication that the gospel that we believe, our identity in Jesus, is supposed to flow and inform and shape every part of our lives. There's no aspect of our lives that should not be saturated with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And certainly our marriages are included in that. That's the immediate, literal context. We need to think about the cultural context because he's writing to the people in a particular time in a situation which is going to have similarities to ours as well as differences. The norms of their time of relationships were very different. This society, although it's not certainly that far removed, but it is different, it is very patriarchal. It, it's certainly very patriarchal. There, there's, there's husbands who just determine everything in their families, and certainly they would have determined the religion of their homes. They would have allowed their wives to have maybe another religion, but it's an add-on to the main religion of their homes. Again, everyone in society was religious because religion was integrated into everyday life. You don't have until the Enlightenment the separation of the sacred and secular. It's, they saw that as all integrated. And so wives would follow the religion of their husbands in their homes. And so in this particular case, he, Peter is addressing a wife 
who probably became a believer after she was married, and now she's married to a non-Christian. How does she take her faith and allegiance to Jesus in this marriage to a non-Christian who has pagan religions that he still follows? And he's deeply concerned how is this, to instruct this woman on how to put Jesus first still, but still live in a manner that will respect her husband and reflect goodness in the culture so that her witness as a wife, faithful to Jesus, would represent Jesus to her husband and the world. And so he, she, he wants to instruct this woman. How do you have a, a relationship that's culturally respectable? That's why he gives instructions in verses 3 to 4. The adornment, not external, but internal. We read that and maybe we think of that as just being, you know, trying to be more conservative. But actually, that was a cultural good in their time. It seems very strange to us today, but that was a high value in Greek culture, to be modest. And so he's saying, there's some good in the culture. Be respectable to other people's eyes. Don't be unnecessarily uh, conflicting with your husband, even though he doesn't follow Jesus. And so you have to have that as your mark of a follower of Jesus. And culturally, we have to remember, it may seem, as he's saying the first words, wives be subject to your husbands, as being chauvinistic. But he's treating wives and women here as equals to women or to men and husbands. He explicitly says that in verse 7, which we'll get to. Wives are co-heirs. They're completely equal. They're completely the same dignity, value, worth, and access to Jesus. And the fact that he writes and instructs women as equals to husbands, is radically different than the culture around them. In the culture around them, they wouldn't even address women. So that Peter even writes to women and treats them as equals, giving them instructions on how to relate to Jesus in their marriage, is radically different than their culture, uplifting them in so many different ways. So even though we read the text, it may seem very strange to us, he's actually honoring women here. And hopefully you see that as we get into this some more. He is not ignoring women. He's not looking down upon women. He's uplifting them by addressing them and helping them live out their relationship to Jesus in their marriage. So now that's the context. Let's look at wives, instructions of wives, and then last, instruction to husbands. Wives first. Look at verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Subject. If you are familiar with the Bible, maybe you will remember, if you, especially if you went through some premarital counseling, if you're married, Ephesians chapter 5. Where in chapter 5, verse 21, there's this mutual submission, and then that mutual submission to one another and to Jesus plays out in different responsibilities between a husband and wife. Ephesians chapter 5 gives this bigger picture, and I'm going to draw from Ephesians chapter 5, even though I'm not looking specifically at it here, because the context of 1 Peter is a little different. But here, we see throughout the New Testament, throughout the Bible, a husband is responsible for this in the marriage. He's responsible for taking initiative for the flourishing of the wife and his family to be more like Jesus. That's what headship, or I like to call servanthood, is actually all about. So if you want a positive picture and definition of submission for the husband's responsibility, it's actually you follow Jesus so that your wife follows you as you follow Jesus. That's what submission is actually about. As a husband follows Jesus, the wife follows the husband as the husband follows Jesus. That's the same way of discipleship, even as Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. He's responsible for sacrificing or submitting himself or laying down his life so that his family would be more like Christ. And he takes the initiative in his family to follow Jesus. And as he's following Jesus, his wife and his children follow him 
as he's following the ways of Jesus. So to be subject to a husband for a wife is to be willingly and joyfully following him as he's following Jesus. Willing to follow him as he puts the priorities of Christ at the center of a marriage. Now, that's, that's a picture that's positive, and I think I, I could spend a lot of time on that one, but I think maybe for the first time we address this in a long time, I'm going to spend most of our time on what submission is not, because you can understand something by unpacking what it's not. But I first at least want to give you a positive picture. Submission and headship in a marriage is when a husband is putting Jesus as the center of his life, and he's following Jesus, and a wife and his family is following him as he follows Jesus. That's, a, that's the positive, beautiful picture of headship and submission. But let me, let me confront and correct a lot of not pictures that is not submission in Scripture. First, submission does not infer superiority or inferiority. The word submission used of marriage in the Bible never, never, never includes superiority and inferiority. We use that in English because when you think about the word subject or to be submissive in English, we think of a relationship between a stronger person and a weaker person. And so even as we use this English word submit, we need to be careful. Is that actually what's being communicated here? Because we can implicitly and wrongly communicate women are inferior, and that's never the case in Scripture. That is totally false, right? He, he addresses it explicitly in verse 7. Wives are co-heirs. They're equal. They are completely equal in value, dignity, and status. To be a wife does not mean you have lesser access or lesser status for, between God and your husband and God. Peter addresses this very clearly here. Paul also addresses it very similarly. Look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He's not saying there's no more distinctions. There obviously those things still existed. But your access to God, your worth before God, you are not somehow more superior or less and you are inferior because you are subject. That's not included in this usage of the word submission. And you can look at this very clearly if you have a theology that looks at the triune God. The Father is equal to the Son and equal to the Spirit. And the Son is equal to the Father and the Spirit. And the Spirit is equal to the Father and the Son. But you look at the relationship between Father, Son, Spirit. You see the Son submit himself to the Father's will. You see the Holy Spirit submit to the sending out that Jesus sends out and the Father sends out. And so as Jesus submits to the Father, that does not communicate in any way that he is inferior to the Father. They're completely co-eternal and co-equal. And yet there's a responsibility there, a role, differentiation. And I think we need to hold those things in tension. There's a way to have submission be communicated that does not communicate in the way we use it in English, inferiority and superiority. That's what we have to get. It does not communicate someone's better or stronger or weaker in terms of access to God. Submission does not mean superiority for the husband and inferiority for the wife. That is never, ever ever true. Second, submission does not mean following your husband into sin. And so Jesus is the first. So as a follower of Jesus, Jesus always takes first place in your life. That's why even headship as a husband, you are putting Jesus first in your life and your family is following you and submitting to you as you put Jesus first. 
So Jesus is first. And so it never means for a wife to follow your husband into sin, whether it's a big sin or a small sin. If he asks you to do something that's contrary to Scripture in your relationship to him or to the world, you do not follow him. It is not being unsubmissive to say, this is something I won't do because it violates the word of God. I think sometimes, wrongly so, husbands and churches have encouraged women to just go along because that's what your role is. No, 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 no. The, the Lord Jesus is first. And so as a wife, if your husband is leading you into sin, you don't follow him. That's not being unsubmissive because submission is something you willfully follow as he's following Jesus first in his life. You have a Lord that's above him, the Lord Jesus. It does not mean following your husband into sin. Third, submission is not the responsibility of the husband. Let me say that again because maybe this is a little confusing. Hopefully it makes sense to you. Submission is not the responsibility of the husband. It's the responsibility of the wife in the relationship. A husband's job is never to get his wife to submit. It can only be given freely. And so the husband is called to love his wife in Ephesians 5. Lay down your life. Those are the roles that the husband has. You are never to get submission. That's a distortion of your responsibility and your role. Husbands cannot and should not biblically demand submission. It can only be freely given to you and you can only receive it. I love how I overheard once this one pastor in a casual conversation describe submission and relationship between him and his wife. And it's always stuck with me. He said, I believe in a wife submitting to her husband, but I don't believe the husband ever has a right to demand it. And this is something he said right after it. It's so simple and it's always stuck with me. He said, my responsibility as a, as a husband is to be worthy of submission. As husbands, your role is not to get the woman to follow you. She has to joyfully follow you. Your responsibility is to be worthy of it, to love Jesus first, to lay down your life for the flourishing of your wife and your family. That when the husband focuses on the submission part, which is not your responsibility, it's the wives, you are distorting it. You are supposed to focus on laying down your life, loving your wife. Your wife's responsibility is to follow you as you follow Jesus. So don't ever, as a man, as a woman, think that submission is your responsibility. No, it's, it's your wives. I love what he said. My responsibility is to be worthy of submission. So three things that submission is not. It's not communicating inferiority. It's not following your husband into sin. Submission is not the responsibility of the husband. Fourth, and maybe women, I think maybe this is something you need to hear whether it's a circumstance now or something that will happen, I, I pray this gets seared into your mind and your heart. Submission does not ever, it does not ever, 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 it never, never, never means yield or stay silent in any form of abuse. It never means you stay silent or yield when there is abuse in your relationship, any abuse, whether sexual verbal, spiritual. You don't give in to it. You don't stay silent. You don't ignore it. Women have experienced greater abuse already, and now it's even heaped upon when you are told that you are to just tough it up and put up with it because that's what submission is. That is not submission because he's leading you into sin in that. 
That is not something you should follow. When a man is abusing a woman, it is not unsubmissive to tell someone about it. It is not unsubmissive to hold your husband accountable for his sin. That's what we are called to, and mutually responsible for one another. That is not what this word means, ever, in the scriptures. In fact, even verse 7, when it says the weaker vessel, we'll unpack that a little bit more. It has to do with physicality. It actually explicitly prohibits and condemns physical abuse. And so if you are a woman and you are in an abusive relationship, it does not mean staying silent. It does not mean ignoring. It doesn't mean just, well, follow God's will. I need to just kind of tough it out. No, you are not being unsubmissive if you tell a church leader that you need help. You are not being unsubmissive if your husband is being criminally abusive and you call the police. That's not being unsubmissive. That is being right. You do not have this call to just take it. That is not submission. And I pray that God's word, as we look at this some more, would give you that freedom, that removal of shame. If that is the situation you are in as a church, we want to walk with you and help you in that situation. That is not the call of submission for any woman, ever. Whether you hear that's something you're experiencing now or young women, if you find yourself in that place, say something. That is not what scripture says, that you have to stay silent, you just tough it up. That is not submission. It does not ever, ever, ever mean you yield to abuse and stay silent. Fifth, submission is not the same in every marriage. Submission does not look the same in every relationship. Notice that the Bible is, this is how beautiful the Bible is. It's, it's written not only in a particular place and context for first century people, but the Holy Spirit inspired these readers or these writers to write in such a way it applies to every place and every time and every circumstance. Notice, even though Peter and Paul, and if you look at the entire Bible, they are giving some principles that apply in their culture. They also don't lay out so many lists of things to do because he wants this principle of a biblical marriage to apply everywhere. And so I think because he doesn't lay out, right, notice, he never says this is what submission looks like. He never lays out, well, these are the 12 steps to biblical submission. These are the 12 steps for a husband. Because I believe submission is not the same in every marriage. It's supposed to be worked out specifically in every relationship. First century submission looks a lot different than now. Your marriage relationship and what love and submission looks like will look different than your friend's marriage. There are theological foundational truths here that need to be worked out in conversation and love between a husband and wife in every place and every culture. It doesn't mean you have to agree on everything. If you get to know Jeanette and I some more, you will notice that we have very differing opinions on politics. She's always worried because every time we have a voting situation happen, I, she's worried how I'm going to vote because I usually vote very different than her. But her having a different political situation is not her being unsubmissive. She's free to have her own opinions about that. I mean, that's not her being unsubmissive to me because I'm not trying to lead her. Following political things is not following Jesus. It plays out in politics. It doesn't tie one-to-one. If you don't vote this way, you're not following Jesus because there is no Jesus party today, right? There is none. And so if you talk to us, actually, I, I'm probably, I'll just be honest, I, I don't have any position. I try and have none, and I, I try and go open-handed with everything and say, Let's, what's the situation now? where she has a particular category she tries to think through more so, and I don't use the same ones, and that's okay. 
it has to be worked out. Submission looks different in every single marriage. And I think, let me just give you a couple stories from my own marriage to Jeanette that helped me understand this. And every single time, if you, look at, if you look at our marriage, and I thought about this this week, and just blessed by doing this recalling, every time she, I note a moment where she was following me as I'm trying to follow Jesus, it's been a blessing for our marriage and for me. When we were dating and we were engaged at the time, I was finishing my last year of seminary, and I was trying to figure out where to serve. Uh, she loved Chicago, so much so, uh, she was working for a number of years at the time, and she had means, and she, she bought like, a very small starter condo and a place that we could move into. And she's like, I'm going to start investing my life here in Chicago. I, we loved Chicago. She wanted to be there and live life there and not move away. We had found that, our place. And I, I wanted to f- stay there. And so I interviewed at over 10 churches trying to find my place there. I felt at that time a call to still serve in a Chinese heritage church. And I, ta- I describe it as a heritage church because, you know, I have a Taiwanese Chinese background, and God made me that way. And even though I'm very Midwestern and very many ways culturally much more Midwest, I, I felt like God made me this way so I could serve in this context so that the heritage, we could honor the past and see what God would do in the future. And I felt like I wanted to serve in one of those Chinese heritage churches. But as I interviewed, I couldn't find anything that fit. I felt like all those places were going to crush me, and I was like, I don't, I don't really want to follow any of these leaders. And at the time, one of my professors introduced me to two pastors that were part of an organization he was starting. And one of them was in Boston, and one of them was here in San Francisco at Sunset Church, because our old senior pastor was a part of that group. And I was telling her, like, I just spent, like, five months interviewing at almost every church I could find that's looking for a position. I can't find anything here. I know we just, or you just bought a place, and you want to live here. You have no interest in moving. All of our friends are here. All of our life is here, but I'm trying to follow Jesus, and I don't sense it here. I don't know what that means, and I I can try and do it more. I could still try and stay here longer, but I don't know, and so I'm going to look. And so I looked at Boston, and I looked at San Francisco, and we prayed about it, talked about it, and eventually she still didn't want to go, but she was like, you know, if we're talking about this, don't really, please don't really look at Boston, because in her work, in her interests, relationships, she has nothing like really anything drawing her to Boston. And so even though actually I really wanted to go to Boston, one of my closest friends to this day in ministry is still a pastor at that church. She's like, well, I don't really want to go to Boston. So like, we're navigating this. I don't know if I can stay. She's trying to give me her input. And at San Francisco, her brother lives here. She still lives here. And even though we didn't know anyone else here, that was enough to try and move here because there's some family here. And that's what brought me here to interview and look. And I removed our life from this place she wanted to be. And she was willing to follow as I'm trying to follow Jesus. And I I can say that moment of her trying to follow me as I'm trying to follow Jesus blessed us and blessed me in so many ways. So many ways. Because every single time in that conversation, in our relationship, in that time, she was willing to, to see Jesus as first and trying to push me towards Jesus too, even expressing her opinions in that and just trying to speak into my life and help me make the decision. It was reminding me of the gospel because even though she wanted to be there, she did not want to leave that place. She was willing to follow Jesus as I followed Jesus. And that blessed me because it reminds me of the gospel. Jesus took our sins and submitted himself to suffering. And the power of that submission resulted in our salvation. I mean, to the world, submission looks weak and foolish, but we know it's the power of God, and the power of submission results in life. 
And so as she was willing to follow Jesus by following me as I followed him, oh man, that displayed the gospel to me. And through Jesus' submission, God accomplished our salvation. And so submission doesn't look the same in every marriage. I hope you understand that. And even that small story, it's not going to apply in every single circumstance. Maybe if you have that same circumstance, you are called to stay where you are. I don't know. But as she was trying to follow Jesus, and as I'm trying to follow Jesus, as we're having honest, sometimes difficult conversations with one another, we saw this submission and my laying down my life for her work out in blessing and flourishing. And it's not because I was trying to force her, but because she was trying to follow Jesus as I'm trying to follow Jesus. If we believe in the gospel, we will see the power of mutual submission and laying down our lives. In fact, you won't ever submit unless you see Jesus having submitted himself for you. So submission does not look the same in every marriage. One thing I want to look at specifically, because this is the context here, is that this particular context is wives submitting to a non-Christian husband. And that's unique to Peter's writing. Look at the rest of verse 1 and 2. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. She's probably a Christian after she was married, as she heard the gospel came to him, and now she's married to a non-Christian. Again, notice, Peter, the, Paul, the entire New Testament, it, it never says that you have now grounds for divorce. That's another conversation for another time. But just because you became a believer and you're now married to a non-Christian, it doesn't dissolve that marriage. That marriage, whether or not you recognize Jesus or not, when you get married, is something that God, in his common goodness, recognizes the covenant that lasts until death do you part. But notice, it doesn't dissolve her marriage, but it gives her a new call. As she's now a follower of Jesus, she's actually a missionary in her marriage. She's part of what God wants to use in proclaiming Christ to her husband who does not yet know him. And he's calling this wife to submit to Jesus by staying in the marriage and following her husband for the purpose of salvation. She's not being subjected by her husband. She's willfully choosing to follow Jesus and submitting to her non-Christian husband so that she could proclaim Christ. Now remember, that doesn't mean following her husband into sin. It doesn't mean you listen to your husband if he's telling you to not worship Jesus. But think about it. Jesus submitted and suffered. He was God. At any single moment on his trial that was trumped up or his beatings or his crucifixion, he could have literally called down all the angels, wiped away every single wrong person, and been right and just. But why did he stay? To fulfill God's plan of submission and salvation. And submission had a power there. And so the reason a wife stays with her husband is not because of the husband. It's because of Jesus. You have been called to Jesus. You have been bought by the blood of Jesus. And so you don't even belong to yourself. You belong to Jesus. And because you want to follow Jesus, you hear this and you say, I want to display Jesus to my husband. As long as the conduct of your husband doesn't contradict your call to Jesus and his leadership in the family does not contradict your following of Jesus, you are called to display Christ in your following of him. Not because you're less, not because you're lower, but because you have a relationship to Christ that defines this marriage that you find yourself in. And I can think of so many examples in our church of women who are in marriages like this, 
who've shared with me both in the difficulties and the pains and just so thankful for those women in our church who had that story. But I can think of no greater example of this in my life than my mother. She was the first Christian in our home and I was 10. And she brought my brother and I to church because we were little kids and we can't really say no. But my dad didn't want to go to church. He wasn't a Christian and so he didn't want to go. And uh, my brother and I eventually fought my mom hard enough and she stopped trying to force us to go to church. So I didn't go to church my, from like eighth grade probably until like my sophomore or junior year of high school. And my mom now finds herself in a marriage to a non-Christian. And she's trying to submit to Jesus as her Lord and yet still follow the leadership of my dad who's not a believer. And my dad leads our family into a lot of his interests and hobbies. Uh, if you know my family, you know my dad long enough, he is, I wouldn't say avid, I would say obsessed fisherman and hunter. And she supported him throughout many, many seasons in his interest. She has zero, probably little to zero interest in hunting and fishing. In fact, my dad now, as a Christian, will spend months in Alaska uh, fishing for, for months and just be happy. And my dad, even though he's here, I'm not going to point him out, but if you know him, you know him. Like, I can say this and hopefully he won't get mad at me later. He's cheap. And like, he's crazy cheap when it comes to certain things and very willing to spend on other things. And when it comes to fishing, he would live in squalor in Alaska. Like, for a while, he was like, well, let's just live in the car. Like, let's just sleep in the car for months. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you're going to make mom stay in a car? So the very first year, Jeanette and I, we had to buy the Airbnb just to try and encourage him. But that's my dad now as a Christian. Imagine him not as a Christian. Leading my mom into his interests of fishing and hunting. And she always sought to put Jesus first, but was willing to display in her love for my dad a support supporting of his interests and loves as long as it didn't contradict Jesus. And I, I will always remember this one moment though, a display of putting Jesus first, but still a willingness to follow my dad and a coming to, to this moment that's just seared in my memory. I was a senior in high school. I graduated from uh, high school already. And at that point, I felt God was laying on my heart something. I didn't know what it was. Maybe it was a call to ministry, maybe it wasn't, but I felt something. And so I was already accepted to, the, to a university that my dad was very happy about, that I was happy about. And I felt like, well, maybe I shouldn't go there because maybe God wants to do something on me. So maybe I should go to a, a Christian university because I could study the Bible there. I have no idea. So I have no, no concept of what God's doing on my heart and my mind. But I remember telling my dad, I maybe don't want to go to this university that you're super happy that I'm going to. And now I'm going to go to this literal no-name Christian university literally in the middle of nowhere. And he said... If you do that, I won't pay for it. And I will never forget what my mom said. If he won't pay for it, I will. She had been working. She supported my dad. But she felt as she's following Jesus, seeing what Jesus was doing in my heart, I will support what God is doing in my son's life. It's through that kind of submission to Jesus in my mom's marriage that she displayed 1 Peter 3, and eventually saw my dad come to Jesus, which is such an amazing thing. And there, that's, that's just true of my mom. It's true of so many women I know in our church and in the church, faithful wives submitting to Jesus first and loving their husbands. Let's look at the instruction to husbands because we need to say something about this. 1 Peter 3, 7. Instructions to husbands now. Likewise, husbands, 
Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Husbands, if you read first, or sorry, Ephesians chapter 5 carefully, you will see in chapter 5 verse 21, you are called to submit to one another out of reverence for God. And you, as you submit to Jesus, you are called to, in your putting him first, lay down your life. Sacrifice your life. Love her like Jesus loves the church, which is an incredibly high and difficult challenge to us. And this needs to be worked out, right? So what does it mean for a husband to lay down his life for his wife? I think it looks, again, different in every marriage, but here's some principles here for us in this text. Short, but so rich. Live with your wives in an understanding way. That's the first thing he says. An understanding way. Literally, it means according to knowledge. So if you want to love your wife like Christ loves the church, you need to have some knowledge. You need to know something. And what do you need to know? There's two pieces of information you need to be a, a student of. You need to be steeped in God's word. You need to know it. You need to study it. You need to obey it. Because think about what you're called to, what you're responsible for as a husband in a marriage. You are called to lay down your life. How will you ever do something you don't want to do unless you see in God's word Jesus doing it for you? You won't. You will not actually do do anything the calling for a husband is called to do unless you're in God's word because you won't be able to do this unless you are tasting and seeing this done for you by Jesus. Only when you see Jesus submitted himself for your life, for your sake, will you begin to actually begin to submit and lay down your life. To drink, you, you need to know the word of God to drink from this living word because you won't actually have anything to pour out unless the word of God is pouring into your heart. So you need to be someone who's a student of God's word. So even young men right now who maybe want to be dating, want to be married, you know what you need to spend time in? God's word. Now, not when you're married. If you want to be the kind of man who woman want and the kind of woman you do want to marry you you need to be a student of god's word because you won't do anything the bible calls you to do unless you're in it but more than just knowledge and although that's foundational i'm not going to say this is less it's actually probably the most important knowledge but i would say a second piece of knowledge you need to know is knowledge about your wife do you know your wife according live with your wife according to knowledge in an understanding way. Do you know how to love your wife? And again, she's a unique person, made in the image of God, who God has blessed you with. She is different than any other woman on this planet, than any other person in the history of time. Do you know her? And so just like you need to be a student of God's word so you can rightly receive from God, you need to be a student, and it seems weird to say this, but it's true, a student of your wife. Do you pay attention to her? Do you know what makes her tick? Do you know her needs? Do you know her goals? Do you know what helps her flourish in following Jesus? Do you know what keeps her up at night? Do, do you know how to best help her grow in Jesus? Which means you need to know her sins and her temptations. You need to know her strengths. Do you, do you know the simple things, like how to make her happy and flourish? Do you know how she takes her coffee or how she takes her tea? Do you know how she takes her boba? 
Do you, do you know what makes her smile? Do, do, do you know her spiritual gifts? Or maybe the gifts she has that she's timid about using and you need to encourage her to use them. Do you, do you know what she finds most difficult when it comes to obeying Jesus? Do you know what scriptures you should be praying for her right now? And actually, that is not static. That's dynamic. That changes from season to season. So when it says live with your wife in an understanding way, that's not something you do once when you do premarital counseling. That's something you do every single moment, every single day of your life. You are in God's word. You are paying attention and studying what God is doing with this amazing person that God has blessed you with. And you want to make her someone who's more like Jesus. Do you know her enough? Are you paying attention to her? Do you know her cues? Second, if you want to know how to lay down your life, the one principle here is show honor to her as the weaker vessel. Again, remember, it's not inferiority, superiority. So even weaker, when we look at that as a, as a negative word. But weaker does not mean less. There's a certain, he says, honor her as the weaker. There's a certain sense in which weakness, we look at scripture, right? Weakness has a certain strength to it, right? By our weakness, we know Jesus is strong. By, even look at Jesus in Philippians chapter 2. He, he took on weakness, and that's how he received glory. He took on human flesh. The creator became creation. Even in that weakness, we see glory and honor. So even though she may be weaker, and I'll explain what that means in a moment, that's deserving of honor. And that is deserving of respect. And this generally means, when it says weaker, to physicality. Because generally, most men are more physically able than women, which is why generally if you look at the highest competition of athletes in the world, they're still competing men against men and women against women. That's certainly not universal because there's certainly lots of women who could take me on and take me out. In fact, it hurts my pride often. You know, if, if you're, you don't know me, I, I like to run and I'm trying to, to train for different things. And, you know, this past week, uh, a group of triathlon women, and I knew they were triathlon runners because they were wearing clothing that recognized one of the triathlons they ran. They just like breezed right past me. And normally when a woman is getting, like when I'm running around Lake Merced and a woman gets close to me, I'm like, no, she's not going to beat me. In fact, my pride hurts so bad. One time this woman was pretty fast and I hadn't run lower than an eight-minute mile in a while. And I was like, no, she's not beating me. And I just died running that one mile so she wouldn't get ahead of me. In fact, she still beat me at the end. But I wouldn't, I, I, I didn't want my pride to hurt, but these triathlon women, I was like, oh, forget it. I'm not even going to try. I'm just not going to do it. So it's not universal. But in general, look at history. Look at just being honest. Weaker means physicality. And in the first century, like sadly today, many men used their physical strength to subdue women. And Peter directly challenges that. He says, no, honor her in this weakness that she has. Because there's something about that that displays the glory of the gospel and the image of God here. And so how do you stay, show honor to a woman who generally, not always, universally, is the weaker vessel physically? I was trying to think about all the ways. I can't give all of them, but here's one example. Like, if you're a husband and you're married to an amazing woman that God's given to you, you honor her as a weaker vessel when in the middle of the night you hear a strange noise, you get out of bed. You don't say to her, honey, I got up last time. It's your turn now. No, it is always your turn. When, something, when you hear the garage door open in the middle of the night and it's not supposed to, you don't say, it's your turn, honey. No, it's always your turn. You put your life in the place of danger before her. 
And so if you're a single lady and you want to know how you should marry this man, have one of your friends surprise you and sneak you on a you know, attack uh, when you're on a date and see if the guy runs away. Because if he does, do not marry that man. Right? I think actually most people would be very scared. But you get the point, right? What are the physical ways that you, and again, this is going to be worked out in every marriage. Right? Every marriage, every relationship is going to be different. Every man and woman is slightly different. Like if my wife was like, Jeanette and I are generally the same height, but if my wife was, you know, six foot, I mean, her responsibility would be get the things off the top, not mine, right? But if you are much taller than your wife, that's, that's your responsibility. If you are a husband, you honor your wife physically when you are present and you use your energy, your time, your abilities, and you try and make her flourish. And so you take every opportunity, you find opportunities to clean the house and use your abilities, you, you find opportunities when you have young children to hold the baby. You take out the trash. You kill the spiders if your wife doesn't like to do that. And if she loves to do that, praise God for the amazing wife. <laughs> right? You work this out, but you are physically present and you use that to bless her and help her flourish. Husbands and wives, if you've been married even a day, you know this, right? You get home from work on Monday and it's almost like you have a competition, like, I'm tired. Oh, I'm tired. Like, you try to, you basically almost have a competition. Who had the worst day? Because when you want to say that, whoever had the worst day, now the person who didn't have that worst day, now you have to serve that person. But husbands, you always had the better day. No matter how bad your day was, and you use that energy, that strength, that time, that ability to be present. And so put down, I'm preaching to myself, because my wife has said this to me, and I agree with her, put down your phone. Put away that controller. Because that's what I want to do. And I use my presence and my physicality to be someone who is helping her flourish, honoring her. The last thing is, I want to say about husbands, it's a very weird and very amazing, profound statement. Look at the last part of verse 7. So that your prayers may not be hindered. This is kind of weird, isn't it? First, take it at, first understand it. If you are not the kind of husband God calls you to, he won't answer your prayers. Hear that first. But then think about why. I think about how amazing this is and how much love God has for his little princesses. And I say that, and I'll explain why in a second. You know, this, for men, husbands especially, this is the litmus test. Do you want to know how you know you're a good husband? Look at your prayer life. Look at your answered prayers or unanswered prayers. Because if you are not loving your wife like Christ loves the church, your prayers, literally it says here, will be hindered. And so look at your prayer life or the lack of it. Look at the unanswered prayers. Do you want to know how you know if you're a good husband or if you're in right relationship to God? Your prayers are being answered. And I thought about this. I was like, this is, this is kind of weird. But I thought about it in, in terms of my own daughters. And it began to make sense to me. Because my little one, my little one, Selah, she's four years old. She's a little, beautiful princess. In fact, when, you know, the first day of school, you have like the how old they are, what, you know, what grade they're going into, and what they want to be when they grow up. My daughter said, princess. <laughs> my, my wife was like, well, you can't be a princess. And she wrote Disney above it. At least it was a job, right? But like, no, she's... <laughs> She's an actual princess because if, and I hope one day, she comes to know Jesus, and that's my main responsibility to my little girls now is they need to know Jesus. 
above, above clothing, above education, my greatest responsibility to my little girls, as much as I can, is to help them know Jesus. But hopefully one day, she will know Jesus. And the moment she knows Jesus, she is the daughter of the king. So she is a literal princess. And I was thinking about this, why this text began to make sense. It's so amazing to have little girls. I pray for them a lot. And I generally pray these two prayers regularly. Um, one is I pray, because she has an older sister, that her, her and her sister will be best friends. I want them to be best friends. Because I want them to love each other, like each other, for the rest of their lives because mom and dad won't be here forever and hopefully they will be with each other and love each other and take care of each other. So I pray for them to be best friends. The second prayer, I pray for each one of them. But maybe I'm a little more worried about my, my youngest one. I, I pray for her future husband all the time. I am praying hard and fervently because there will be this one day, this terrible, horrible day when Selah falls in love. When she says to me, Daddy, I, I, I want to spend the rest of my life with this person. And she's still, again, at that time, even though she's now married to someone else in the future, hopefully, to an amazing husband, but still, she's still a little princess, not only to the Lord, but to me. And imagine she's married to this husband, who I don't like anyways, but imagine she's married to this guy, and he's mistreating her, and I know it. He's maybe abusing her, or maybe he's not abusing her, but she, he's just being very rude, an unkind husband. And he comes and he wants to hang out with me. Maybe he, he, he just wants to continue his relationship to me as his father-in-law. Maybe he, he needs something, so he asks me for something, right? To kill that spider or maybe to get something very high off of the shelf. I don't know what he's going to ask me for. But he comes and wants to ask me something. If I know he's mistreating my daughter, if he thinks we're going to be good, he's crazy, right? Because he's harming my little princess. And so when Peter says God is so concerned about his little girls, his children, that he will interrupt his relationship with the husband. That's what he's doing. I won't answer their prayers. So, because this is what he cares about. He cares about husbands laying down his, their lives for their wives. He, he will interrupt your relationship with him because he loves his daughter his princess. He will hinder your prayers. That's literally what it says. Husbands, you cannot think that you are good with God if your marriage is terrible. It just doesn't work out that way. It can't work out that way. If you are not loving your wife like Christ loved the church, if you are abusing or harming your wife, God will interrupt his relationship with you. Never think that you are good with God if you don't love your wife. That's silly. Because just like if my son-in-law came to me and I knew he was mistreating my daughter, I won't. We're not okay. You need to, this is not okay. Our relationship is harmed, son-in-law. I didn't want you to marry her to begin with, right? It's all like, uh, all that stuff. No, hopefully I, have a, I pray for that too. I want a good son-in-law someday. <laughs> but does that thing that makes sense? And that's an amazing thing, isn't it? It's that God loves his daughters so much. I mean, when you think about this, I pray you begin to see in this language here from governing authorities to even unjust rulers and even husbands and wives, even married to a non-Christian husband, you see the cross, I hope. Because we won't do any of this. We won't live this way unless we see the cross because we have to see that Jesus submitted himself to the Father's will, to even unjust rulers for our salvation. You know what kept him on the cross 
It was not nails. It was his love for the Father and his love for you. His life wasn't taken. It was laid down for you. And that's the ultimate picture of spousal love. And so let's be faithful to one another as Christ is faithful to us. Let's pray. Thank you.